Hey everybody, this is Last Coffee House. We are talking about elite liberals trying their hand at electoral bullying. And first I want to say, oh my god, uh, thank you very much. We got to 10,000 downloads. Now I know that seems like just minuscule. That is a drop in the bucket compared to a lot of podcasts, but it's a huge deal to me. So, I mean, I really, really appreciate it. And many of you have stuck with me through all the uh, erratic book finishing schedule. So uh, I really appreciate that too. But so there's this article. It's called Why 14 Critics of Social Justice Think You Shouldn't Vote Trump by Helen Pluckrose. And it's got a bunch of excerpts from various liberals uh, who have problem with woke politics, but they uh, are still urging you not to vote for Trump, notwithstanding. So Steven Pinker is the first one that is featured on here. This is on Aereo magazine. And Stephen Pinker is somebody I grew up reading. You know, I've read several of his books. I have his, uh, what's it called, Elements of Style or something like that, that just talks about writing and how to be a good, clean writer, and it's, it's excellent. And he's a, a psychologist and a linguist, and like I said, he's done a lot of good work. And he's been one of the, liberal, like Sam Harris, he's been one of those staunch liberals that have rejected a lot of the postmodernist nonsense that's been coming out nowadays, whether it's critical race theory or other weird postmodernism that tries to reject the idea of there being objective truth and everything subjective and define everybody by their identity and all that stuff. So on that front, fine. Great. Not just fine, but great. But it's really disheartening to see any semblance of objective standards go out the window when it comes to talking about Donald Trump. So this is how he starts out. Quote, For those who are alarmed, like me, at the encroachment of the regressive, illiberal, anti-enlightenment, critical theory, and social justice identitarianism in our institutions, voting for Trump is about the worst thing you could do. End quote. So the point of this article, of course, is just to say that, yes, all this identitarianism stuff is really bad, <laughs> but don't consider it so bad that you would actually vote for Trump. And here are the reasons that Pinker provides to say that Trump is worse than all the identitarianism on the other side. First, 20,000 lies. That's, that's the excerpt, 20,000 lies. Now, is there a link? Is there a detailed list? Of course not. It just says 20,000 lies. Is there a time period? No. Is there a, a category? Maybe he was playing uh, that one card game where you make stuff up to make people laugh, and he just counted those. I don't know. But um, this is one of the standards that is being used to determine that even though the left has gone completely insane at this point, that you still shouldn't vote for Trump. Okay. So again, no details on that one. But uh, post-truth epistemology. Again, begs a lot of questions. So epistemologically, which side is more inclined to be aligned with the postmodernist educational tradition that is coming out of our universities right now? That talks about, oh no, there is an actual reality, there is subjective experience that says that there's a, a lived truth. I mean, it was Don Lemon on CNN, right? Explicitly talked about how he has his truth. I'm I'm a journalist, but, but there's not the truth. I have my truth, and that's what I bring is my truth, which is complete insanity and childishness. But just philosophically, and when it comes to political theory, it has been one side that has been talking about this, uh, eliminating this idea of there being an objective truth, or there being anything such as a meritocracy, that everything really is defined by identity and power relationships. So what Pinker means about Trump and his post-truth epistemology, I mean, I'm guessing he means the exaggerations and braggadocio and all that. I mean, when it comes to the epistemology, the structured epistemology under what Trump says, because his boasting isn't based on a premise that suggests that there is no truth. His boasting is based on a premise that I am the most meritocratic, I have the most merit, and that's why I'm allowed to be like this, and that's why all my ideas are correct. 
The epistemology on the other side specifically suggests that the merit and hierarchy of argument doesn't matter. It's specifically about what is your identity? Your identity confers upon you some epistemological abilities, and that's how we determine what we're going to go with or not. It's not even what's true. It's what we're going to, how we're going to determine who gets to win in the power dynamic. So we need a lot more explanation on what post-truth epistemology means here. And then another reason, reason number three here in this little blurb, is demonizing fact-checked media coverage that doesn't flatter him as fake news and enemies of the people. Now, this one drives me the most insane. Because the other ones, you know, there's fungibility in those. When it comes to demonizing fact-checked media, the media has been absolute partisan trash for years. This is at the tail end of a multi-year, multi-million dollar investigation into Russiagate that was just slathered on by mainstream media for the entirety of the time. They ignore Middle Eastern peace deals or downplay them. And right now, after having used the Steele dossier and whatever completely unlikely hypothesizing about what might be going on with Trump and Russia, now they're suddenly worried about journalistic ethics and out of nowhere, just whole cloth deciding that the Hunter Biden laptop and emails and his former business partner who came out, Tony Bobulinski, that these things are not only incorrect or invalid, but completely not newsworthy and have to be downplayed. One news organization even said that we have to treat them as Russian disinformation, even if they're most likely not. This has been a media that is absolutely opposed to an administration and has been doing everything that it possibly can to attack the administration. And I don't know, because Steven Pinker doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to be dishonest about this, so I'm guessing that his news sources are all one-sided. But to not give Donald Trump some kind of credit, whether you like the guy or not, for calling out the ridiculous news media and big tech lack of ethics when it comes to reporting on this administration for the last four years, I mean, it's just beyond the pale. That's, that's ridiculous, and there's no excuse for that. I mean, not even, even beyond that stuff, just reporting when it comes to BLM and the riots and all that sort of stuff. When it comes to police brutality. I mean, every single news organization should have easily come out immediately. Every time one of these anecdotes come out, they should have immediately said that, okay, so this happened, this was wrong. You can't extrapolate from that some kind of broad condemnation on the entirety of the 700,000 police officers in the United States. It's an extremely rare event. You can't extrapolate from that some kind of broad responsibility of all the white people of the United States or all of America or all of American history now. I mean, all of that is complete nonsense. And they didn't do it. They haven't done it. Every time it comes out, they fan the flames as much as humanly possible to the contravention of every bit of established evidence that we have out there. Then blowing off and suppressing science. Now, I mean, there's some kind of valid criticism somewhere in there when it comes to the rhetoric that was used related to his scientists and what a scientist say and all that sort of thing. Fine. But when it comes to the actual practice, I don't know what you're talking about. The most trenchant thing that you can say about Donald Trump is that he should have worn a mask and encouraged mask wearing more in the beginning, even though Northern Europe doesn't wear masks and Southern Europe wears masks fastidiously and both of them are having approximately the same experience depending on how severe the early wave was. And we have differential lockdowns, all that stuff in the United States, and we have different experiences when it comes to rates that is much more dependent on how severe the initial wave was and whether you put COVID-positive patients in nursing homes. That's the big question. 
But over time, it's it's absolutely not. Like when it comes to the WHO, the CDC, they eventually came around to the positions that Trump espoused. Trump didn't have any evidence, or he had little evidence at the time to talk about how schools need to be opened and talk about how lockdowns are not a good idea. The WHO just started talking about how lockdowns are a bad idea because the overall cost is is much worse than what actually happens. Uh, the death rates overall, once we got more idea on how many people were getting the thing, plummeted. You know, now it's it's extremely rare. And for people under 20, it's either 20 or 25. For people under 20 or 25, the flu is more deadly. And 94% of the deaths have 2.6 underlying conditions. All those things, you take them into account. Now, I don't know that Trump had all this information at the time that he's talking about these things. But the reality is that he provided ventilators, PPE. The worst thing you can say about him is he should have masked more, you know, assuming that masks actually work, which Nordic countries actually dispute this wholeheartedly. And that's why they only have like a 5% masking rate. So we've got a second little blurb here that talks about how there were tens of thousands of avoidable COVID deaths. I mean, this is just broadly stated, bleh, like uh, we're just asserting this. And as a scientist, as a linguist, as a psychologist, I mean, I know psychology is still in the midst of that soft science kind of purgatory right now. But still, what's the evidence for this, that there were tens of thousands? How many? And by what metric are you making that determination? And why is it that if Trump's so uniquely bad, why is it that all the other countries in the world are, are suffering? And to what effect? would Trump have had to truncate our republic and federalism to be able to accomplish whatever you're assuming that he could have accomplished by throwing down an iron fist and deciding that, you know, we're going to have nationwide lockdowns or we're going to have some kind of registry or arrest people who weren't wearing masks or whatever. You know, by what metric are you making that determination? I have no idea, but I think this is just blathering. Increases in deadly pollution from mindless scything of regulation. Okay, obviously he has no idea whether it's mindless scything of regulations. He has no idea what the amount of increases in deadly pollution are, nor what effect it would have. And I looked up the statistics from, uh, it was 2015, 2016, there was a decrease in carbon emissions. There was a 3% increase from 2017 to 2018, which is the EPA suggests is because of temperature, extreme temperature fluctuations and heating and cooling costs. But carbon emissions are still down significantly since 2005, but that's not even the point. So, and what effect already could just pulling out of the climate accords and whatever scything of regulations you want to reference, what effect could that have had and what is the actual quantifiable effect of those things? Now, I'm 100% open to, to this question. The next one is harmful delays on climate change action. 100% open, but to just broadly state that, uh, you know, this far-off, vague, extremely complex that implicates all the countries of the world, including China, which I think creates double the pollution and isn't even a modernized nation really yet. You have to quantify these things. If this is a reason for that, I mean, this is such a vague assertion that you have to be able to quantify this and say that, okay, these are the reasons. That despite the identitarianism on the other side, that we need to issue everything positive that's been done by this president because of climate change. And then third, and we've got signals contempt for enlightenment norms and institutions like democracy, free trade, and organizations for international cooperation, while raising prestige of the world's most loathsome tyrants. Again, I mean, shockingly vague, but when it comes to enlightenment norms, who's really doing that? Is that Donald Trump is talking about the greatness of the country and hard work and all that sort of thing and opportunity? Or is it the other side who's saying that the country is and has always been a complete moral catastrophe and needs to be torn down foundation and all and rebuild entirely in some new utopian idea, socialist utopian idea, where we enforce equality from the top down? Which one is eschewing enlightenment norms? 
And obviously free trade, I mean, it's China. The whole problem was that China wasn't participating in free trade in the way that other countries participate in free trade. So they got a leg up on that by manipulating currency and using suppression of individual rights to be able to lower wage costs so that they can beat everybody else, all that sort of thing. So we could talk about free trade. Contempt for institutions like democracy. Now, he just had a grand opportunity to be able to just trample all of the checks and balances that are imposed upon him. He had every opportunity to engage in another foreign war so that he could take more power, and he did not. Now, on the other side, what are it's not the fringe left that are talking about the things that they're talking about, of getting rid of the filibuster, of packing the Supreme Court to make it completely... Now, that will be devastating to my profession. We'll end up with a bunch of fiefdoms where circuit courts are just deciding, okay, this is the law, we're not going to pay attention to the Supreme Court because now it's politicized. We're just adding as many judges as we can get so that we can have a majority because we're treating it as a super legislature instead of as an adjudicatory body that is just trying to interpret the law notwithstanding whatever their personal biases are. But this is explicitly what the other side is talking about doing. Not just talking about, they are enthusiastic about doing. And the presidential candidate can't say that, no, we're absolutely not going to do that, which should be the answer. And adding more states so they can get more representation, so that they could take over the Senate, so they could do more things to make them more powerful. These are the things that are democracy-breaking. Not only that, but having a completely invalid investigation for multiple years that turns up nothing. Ignoring corruption on your side. Militarizing not just procedural mechanisms like impeachment, but militarizing the intelligence community against an incoming president. Which is something, again, if there was a fraction of the evidence on the other side that Trump had done any of these things, it would be all that any of the media talks about. But instead, even though it's well documented, to the point of there being substantive criminal convictions on that side for using false and knowing false information to get illegal wiretaps or illegal FISA warrants, and still it's deliberately obfuscated. And articles like this and people, elite liberals like this, who don't take this stuff seriously, they just support these narratives. And because of a biased viewpoint or whatever, they're not willing to actually attack what needs to be attacked in this situation because of bloviating Trump or what he has to say or how they don't like his personality or whatever else. So he ends He ends with, uh, and if you think supporting Trump is in practice a tactical corrective to encroachment of the illiberal hard left, answer this question. Have the encroachments gotten better or worse during the Trump years? This is just, what, advocacy for terrorism? <laughs> so you don't like what the opposition to Trump is doing. Has it gotten better or worse during the Trump years? So therefore, give in to the terroristic tactics. Give them what they want so that they'll stop doing it. Okay, just to, I know I've been analyzing the whole time, but just to analyze this a little bit more. It's just said with such brazen disinterest in the particulars. Now, this is just a blurb, but if you're going to gish gallop, this is something that was uh, popularized when it came to talking about atheism versus theism. Is that there's this one theorist uh, apologist named Gish, and what he would do is he would start, you know, 20 fires in his opening statement. So you didn't have anywhere near enough time to talk about any one of those fires, let alone all of them. You couldn't put them all out. So uh, this is kind of the strategy here. Just throw so many things out here that are so complex that you actually need to talk about. And just say, look, there you can't refute all of them, so therefore I must be right. But there's just this brazen disinterest in the particulars. And just notice how vague and broad the criticisms are. It's very rarely actually about, this is the policy he enacted, and these are the problems with the policy. This is why it's so bad it's beyond the pale and you need to vote against him. It's almost always these vague things about he's a terrible, horrible fascist and he's a terrible, horrible person, and that's the reason. 
But like I said, the other side is perpetuating these untruths. They're using these terroristic tactics and giving cover to things like rioting and looting, not calling out complete BS narratives like BLM, and supporting postmodernist nonsense that is just insinuating itself, you know, like the the African American History Museum in D.C. having that thing up that talked about how what whiteness was and uh, these critical race theory classes that are supposed to attack whiteness and define everybody by their race first. And this is all notwithstanding the absolutely horrendous... <laughs> The horrendous policies that have been implemented in major American cities that are hollowing out those cities that have been amplified, you know, all the terrible economics have been amplified by this pandemic crisis. And so you see just how bad the governance is in places like California and New York. And these are the kinds of policies that the left now is talking about implementing just nationwide. So that's why I see liberal elites like these who reject identitarianism, but they want to give the screaming child their ice cream and say, okay, but but next time, let's have a rational discussion. No. I mean, let's call this what this is. Let's really sum this up, is that they, the left was completely surprised and outraged by what happened in 2016. And this is an emotional, hysterical fit ever since. And now it just amplifies every extreme, terrible, liberal idea. And those are the ones they go to because they're trying to be as extreme as possible. And these liberal elites, they want to pretend they are the coterie of import, the vanguard of good ideas. But they are, at least here, as slovenly, emotionally biased as any college student literally screaming into the TikTok ether about how Orange Man is going to kill all the gay people. Everybody has a responsibility to be as honest as possible about empirical questions. And whether Trump's policies have been good or not for the country is an empirical question. And when most of the criticisms I hear are these vague, uh, our national, international stature has diminished because of Trump. I mean, notice how little they talk about foreign policy. They completely scrapped the idea of foreign policy for the third debate. But when it comes to foreign policy, no new wars, pulling our troops out, not funding a terrorist... <laughs> state that funds terrorists or bribing them to not develop nuclear weapons with a whole bunch of money that they use to fund terrorists while they're still developing nu nuclear weapons. Peace deals. I just uh, heard a full episode with Jared Kushner talking about how they got these peace deals done. Normalizing relations between countries that most of those countries would not have even recognized the existence of Israel prior to this. And now they have diplomatic normalizations. So what are the actual policies? What are the actual policies? What are so apocalyptic about the actual policies that have been implemented by this administration or supported by this administration? You can't attack them on the economics. I mean, it was the greatest economy in history, obviously. But what are the specific policies? Not just, uh, oh, he's done these vague things that, uh, you know, he's attacked climate change and it's going to end the world in nine years now or however long we have left. What are the actual policies? What are the actual policies? And it better be overwhelming evidence that you could demonstrate that policy-wise, completely objectively, with no bias whatsoever against the person as a person, when it comes to his personality, you better be able to demonstrate with overwhelming evidence, because on the other side is this shell of a person who seems completely besieged by all the most extreme elements of his party. And that's while, you know, it's America going into the woods with a flashlight that's dying and hoping we're going to be okay. So you better be absolutely certain. And I think it's absolutely ridiculous that our liberal elites at this point are willing to just throw out this vague biased trash without honestly really taking a look. Okay, policy-wise, where are we? What do we need to do? What's best for the country? So anyway, uh, <laughs> that was a big one. I just wanted to get that out because Steven Pinker is somebody that, you know, I've read lots of his books. I, I really appreciate him and Sam Harris, but I think they've been completely biased because Trump doesn't sound like they do because he's not part of their coterie, because he 
doesn't read the New Yorker and doesn't speak like them, so he's got to be wrong for the country. When every empirical objective fact suggests that that's completely wrong. That if he got the stuff done that he got done, while being opposed by virtually everything on the planet, the entire media machine, the democratic machine, the swampy DC natives that are doing everything they possibly can to attack this guy, the intelligence community, Hollywood completely against him, educational institutions, all the universities completely against him. And yet he was able to accomplish the things that he's accomplished. Just imagine for one second if the other side was reasonable and charitable and didn't have this irrational hatred for him, it, what he'd be able to accomplish. Now, obviously, being a complete narcissist, <laughs> I want to see people who are most like me. If, if somebody who is the president of the United States, I want them to play Call of Duty occasionally, really love Friedrich Nietzsche, and hate pickles to high heaven. I, I would love that to be the case. But the reality is we have to look past that egoism and that narcissism and be able to say that, okay, well, you know, maybe I'm not the right person for being able to get this thing on track in this particular way. Because a lot of times people like us and elite liberals in general, they think too much and don't act enough. And they don't have the kind of minds that, that really look at the numbers. They have the kind of minds that are more concerned about how they say something than the content of what they're actually saying. So anyway, this was supposed to be over. This is the last coffee house. I really appreciate it. I hope all is well. I hope you have a good Thursday. And I will see you on the next one. All right, bye.